This morning we're continuing in our Rich Toward God series. Uh, Next week we'll be wrapping this series up, and we've been looking primarily through chapter 12 of the Gospel of Luke, which is a chapter in which Jesus deals with attitudes and heart motivations towards money. Uh, And I want to start uh, this morning in the best way I know how, which is with a cool picture of me. Uh, There I am. Last January, my wife, uh, Rachel, and I, uh, we had been planning for a long time to go do a Grand Canyon backpacking adventure, and then uh, a number of the people who were in our party got COVID the week leading up to the trip, so it ended up being canceled. And so at a last minute, I said to my wife, hey, would you, I've always dreamed about hiking through the superstition wilderness. Would you ever go with me? And she is a trooper. And so she said, sure. And so we uh, drove, left a car at Peralta Trailhead, which is on the south end of the Superstition Wilderness. And then the next morning, my parents dropped us off at Canyon Lake on the north side of the wilderness. And we hiked all the way through the Superstition Wilderness over the course of a couple of days. It was really great. If you are new to Arizona, because I know one of the things uh, about Arizona is that we tend to have lots of transplants, people who have moved here from other places, and that's constantly ongoing. In fact, that's my wife and I's story 23 years ago. We moved here. Uh, there are a few legends, if that describes you, about Arizona that you need to know about. And I'm going to tell you about one of them today because it's represented by that area we hiked through. This is the legend of the treasure of the lost Dutchman's mind. So the story goes like this. In the 1870s, a German immigrant by the name of Jacob Waltz uh, received some secret insider information reportedly through some extended family members who had been ranching out in the superstitions prior to the Civil War. And the report was that they had found gold in that place. And so Jacob Waltz took that information and he moved across the country out here to Arizona and he went digging around, prospecting out in the superstition wilderness, trying to find the gold that his ancestors had discovered. Now, nobody knew for sure if he had found the gold because he was very secretive about what he was doing out there. Uh, But one thing we did know, every few months he would stumble dirty and disheveled out of the superstition wilderness and end up in Apache Junction somewhere, probably at a saloon, and what he would always have with him is chunks of gold in his pocket. And so the rumor began to spread about this gold mine that was out there in the wilderness, and Jacob, as men tend to do, got old and eventually died, but he left clues about where his mine was. In fact, I've quoted here uh, probably the most famous section of his clue that he left behind about his mine. This is what he said, from my mine you can see the military trail, but from the military trail you cannot see my mine. The rays of the setting sun shine into the entrance of my mine. There's a trick in the trail to my mine. My mine is located in a north-trending canyon, and there's a rock face on the trail to my mine. Now, as someone who walked through this entire section, that is absolute nonsense. Like That does not help at all. Uh, and what the experience has been over the course of the last 100 and almost 50 years that this legend has been going on, no one knows if anyone's ever found the gold. What we do know is there has been a steady stream over all of these years of treasure hunters going out to the superstitions trying to find this secret lost Dutchman's mine. And I think it's an interesting part of our story. In fact, Brad Meltzer, who wrote a book called Decoding History uh, as an American historian, here's what he says. He says, in the end, one detail is unarguable. There will always be those searching for treasure. Never forget, we are a country founded on legends and myths. We love them, especially legends of treasure. 
Looking for treasure isn't just part of being an American, it is America. After all, what did America offer to all of the ancestors that we have that came here? They came looking for wealth and treasure and opportunity and a place where their dreams could be realized. I mean, it's the story of Jacob Waltz. He moved across a country as a German immigrant to come to the wilderness because there was a dream of treasure that he could find in that place. I think every one of us has this in, uh, in us, and Brad Melter makes the point that America is uniquely designed to uh, fan the flames of treasure hunting in the hearts of people because we have opportunity and freedom and we can chase things that we desire in our life. I would argue that I don't think that's necessarily a uniquely American trait. I would say that it's a human trait, and I think Jesus would agree with me. This is the closing text that we're going to be talking about today where Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is one of the most famous quotes from Jesus's ministry. He has many that are famous. This is one of them. And what he seems to be saying here is in every single one of us is a desire to uh, protect and grow treasure. And wherever that is, we will put our hearts and our lives in that place. That is the reality. Jesus, I want to read us through the very short text. We have three verses we're talking about today, but I want to get it in context for us. Here is what Jesus is saying in the text that we have today. He says, Don't be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, in this series that we've been studying out of Luke chapter 12, it's probably easy for us to lose a little bit of uh, focus on what Jesus is doing here because when you pick it up midstream, it's like, oh, here's where Jesus decided it's time to teach people about money. That's actually not what happens in the story because there's an ongoing rollout of what's happening starting in probably Luke 10 where Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's having confrontations with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And what he's confronting them on is their self-righteousness. In fact, the focus of what he's going at is this idea of prominence and hypocrisy. He's saying to these religious leaders, everything you do is so that you can be known, you can be respected, and you can be honored in our culture. In fact, this is what he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. He says the whole reason that you act the way that you act is not because you actually want to honor God, it's because you want to honor yourself. And what really matters to you is not that God is honored in your behavior, but that you get the best seat when you show up at church, the one that you like. Maybe it's in the front, maybe it's in the back. You know the one. And that when you walk through the marketplace, that people come, if they look at you with reverence, they, they're happy to greet you, they know you. That's what you're really concerned about. In fact, in uh, chapter 10, this confrontation with the Pharisees starts to reach a fever pitch and it says that the Pharisees at the end of that chapter have decided we're not going to argue in good faith with Jesus anymore because he keeps coming at us. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to haunt him and we're going to try to catch him so we can get him in trouble. 
And because of that confrontation, Jesus leaves the city and he goes out to the countryside and thousands of people, pilgrims who want to learn, people from the countryside are following around Jesus. And Jesus continues his conversation with the disciples and the crowd who are listening in about not falling for the yeast of the Pharisees. That's what he says. Essentially, they don't fall in the same traps that they've fallen into. Don't trade what God has given you for cheap things like prominence or being known. And in the midst of this confrontation now publicly with the way religious leaders in the land are addressing each other and the people, someone in the crowd who doesn't have great social awareness yells out when there's a moment of quiet and he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus isn't talking about money. He's talking about the Pharisees. He's talking about them missing the entire point as religious leaders. And this guy, clueless, but has his own agenda. Hey, teacher, tell my brother to stop being a jerk and give me what's owed to me. And Jesus, because he's a brilliant teacher, doesn't even miss a beat. He just pivots and keeps teaching along the lines of what he's teaching, but now using money as the direction because of this question. In fact, he says, here's what's going on when you ask this question. Number one, you have a dim reading of the world. You're sitting in this room right now, and it's very well lit. You can read what's on your papers in front of me. You can see my handsome face up here because of the lights. Uh, But if you were here on a Tuesday morning at 8.30 a.m. and you walked in from outside, this room is incredibly dark. And when you come in from the sunlight outside and you open the door, this happens every couple of weeks, I come in because I need to get something in here, and it's pitch black, and I freeze once I get inside the door. And what I'm waiting for is for my eyes to begin to adjust so I can kind of make out what's going on in the room. And then I end up walking through the room a little bit like this. Because I don't want to run into anything, but I can kind of make out where the chairs are. What Jesus is saying to this guy and then saying to his disciples in response to it is, you have a dim reading in the world. You can't quite make out what's actually going on. And because it's dim in here, you're making mistakes. In fact, he tells a story about a man who is a successful uh, agriculture farmer in their community that has a bumper crop one year, and he decides, I'm going to tear down all my barns to make bigger barns so that I can store all this and protect myself and my wealth well into the future. And Jesus says, because you have a dim reading of the world, he says, you fool, you'll die this very night, and then who will get everything you worked for? Jesus is making a wonderful, generally applicable observation that we work our whole lives to secure things that someday that we don't know we will die and who's going to get it then. At the same time, he's actually referring to the guy who's, who has yelled about his father's inheritance. He's talking about his dad. Your dad had enough money that you're obviously in a conflict with your brother about how much money there is. Because after all, if dad left 30 bucks, it'd be like, here's your 10, let's go our pay. There must be a significant amount of money for there to be a conflict over the inheritance. And Jesus is pointing out in a brilliant way, your dad spent his entire life building, securing, protecting this wealth, this inheritance, and now look what it's done to his family. You're at odds with each other and you can't even decide how to divide it up. And he's not even here to have a say into it because he's gone. And he spent his whole life chasing this. And then Jesus offers them a picture of the truth. He says, you have a dim reading of the world. Let me tell you the way the world really works. And he says, consider the ravens. 
They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Jesus says our entire world is concerned about building up our wealth and our security. We're worried about what we're going to eat and where we're going to sleep and what we're going to wear on our back. And he says, look at the birds. They're worthless, and yet God cares for them. How much more is he going to care for you? This is the real world. And if that is the real world, then he encourages us to imagine living in that reimagined world. What does it look like to live in a world where that is true? What comes out of a people who can see the picture of truth that illuminates the world? He says, this should be what comes out of it. You should not be afraid. I love when he says little flock. He calls them this very sweet pet name for his followers. Little flock. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. This earthly father did everything that he knew how to do to provide for his sons, and yet in the end, when he was dead and gone, they're at each other's throats because they're fighting over who gets the kingdom. And their kingdom, in comparison to God's kingdom, is so insignificant. And God has seen fit to give you as his little flock, his kingdom. So that kind of begs a few natural questions. I think the first one is this, what is a kingdom? I think that's a fair question. It might be an obvious question, but it feels like it's a fair question to wrestle with if God gave us a kingdom. A kingdom is a realm over which a ruler exercises authority. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite theologians and philosophers, he says it this way, a kingdom is a range of effective will. A kingdom is a range of of effective will. So essentially, when there is a king or a ruler, his kingdom is anywhere that he can effectively exercise his will. The boundaries of wherever that are designate what his kingdom is. And when we talk about God, the maker, the creator of all things, the maker of heaven and earth, the owner of the cosmos, the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills, his kingdom, the range of his effective will, is all that has been made. Maybe the next question is, do you have a kingdom? John Tyson, who's a pastor out of New York, he says it like this. He says, you've got a kingdom. It might be quite small, but you have one. You have a realm called your life, or at least some part of it, where you get what you want done. If you're in the room today and you go, wait, okay, uh, I'm actually not very influential. My kingdom is fairly small. That's fair. Maybe you are influential. Maybe you do have a lot of power, influence, money. Maybe your kingdom is larger than others. Maybe you're sitting in the room and you're 12 years old and you're saying, "Uh, I live with my parents, then I go to school where my teacher's in charge. Uh, I don't have much of a kingdom. I would say that's true except for you have your own heart and your inner life, which interior life is the place where if you want to be angry, you can be. If you want to spite someone, you can be. If you want to be loving and generous towards people, you can be. You do have an effective range of will that is the kingdom of your life. That is the reality. One of my, this does not make me unique in any way, but one of my uh, favorite TV shows over the last number of years uh, is a show called The Office. You may have heard of it. They have a great character on The Office, Dwight. Uh, This is how Dwight sees himself as he tries to defend his value. He says he's a determined worker, intense, good worker, hard worker, terrific. You can tell what Dwight values, right? He's an intense, determined worker. 
There's an episode where Dwight desperately desires power throughout the entire of the, entirety of the series. In fact, he is the second in command in the office, but there's so little power in the first person in command that the second person really has nothing, but Dwight wants whatever little scrap and morsel there is. And there's an episode where temporarily Dwight gets power. Dwight's given control over the office, and so he has a plan. He's going to motivate everyone, and he's going to do it by offering them shroot bucks. And if you do well in your work, he will reward you with shroot bucks, which you can then turn in for benefits. And I think it was something like a thousand shroot bucks gets you five extra minutes at lunch. And Stanley, who's an older black man who works in the office, has no tolerance for Dwight's nonsense. And so he comes up to try to motivate Stanley, and Stanley blows him off, and he says, don't you want to earn some shroot bucks? And Stanley says, no, in fact, I'll give you a billion Stanley nickels if you never talk to me again. And Dwight, who's always serious, because after all, he's intense and a good worker, he says, well, what's the ratio of Stanley Nichols to Shroot Bucks? And Stanley says, it's the same as the ratio of unicorns to leprechauns. In other words, this is all make-believe. And it only works if we pretend that it means anything whatsoever. And he said, I'm opting out. Love, Stanley. The reality is this is the life that Jesus is describing that most of us run around in. We're chasing Stanley Nichols and Shroot Bucks and trying to stack them up and trying to pretend that our life has deep meaning because we've earned money or we've earned security or we've earned power or we've earned a voice. And Jesus is saying, you have such a dim view of reality. You've traded everything that you have to gain things that in the end you will lose anyway because someday you're going to die and it's all going to be gone. And the best thing you can hope for is that your kids will argue over what you left them. Is this really what you want to put your life toward? I had a meeting with uh, a guy who's around the church a couple weeks ago. He's a very successful businessman who transitioned out of the business that made him successful. And now he's begun a ministry trying to help fathers uh, lead their family. And I asked him what would drive him to start a ministry like that. And he said, being successful in business has shown me so many people who have sacrificed their family, their children, and their marriage in order to chase success. He said, I see it all the time. And they're really good at leading in their business, but they're clueless at the cost that they have paid in not leading their families. And I want to see if I can help that in some way. And I thought it was so interesting when he said that because it occurred to me, if you said to almost anyone at the beginning of their career, hey, I can make you successful, but here's what it's going to cost you. Your family, your legacy, your kids won't like you, and your wife's going to divorce you someday. Are you in? Most people would say, that sounds pretty costly for success. And that's the brilliance of the equation. Nobody asks for the whole amount up front. They ask for payments over time. You can buy a lot of heartache if you pay for it a little bit at a time. And that's the exchange that we're asked to engage in. It's the exchange that's illustrated in its ridiculousness here. The reality is the things that we're trading on in the end of the day are going to be worthless. Warren Buffett, one of the most influential investors in modern history, one of the wealthiest men in the world, he says it like this. You only find out who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. And it's a great point. You can pretend all that you want, but at the end of the day, when you really are exposed, we'll find out where it is. And that's what Jesus says. He might be a better philosopher to talk about. Here's what Jesus says. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? 
What good does it earn you to be the wealthiest man on earth if at the end of your life you lose everything you worked so hard for? What good is it at all? The reality is, Jesus says, if you see that this pursuit, concern, worry, and cost, uh, high-cost endeavor of creating this value that the world tells you is real keeps you from living into God's kingdom, you're going to miss the whole point. And he says, look at the ravens. Look at the lilies of the field. They're not trying at all, and yet God cares for them, and he cares for you even more. In fact, he cares for you so much, little flock, he's given you his kingdom. And he doesn't even do it begrudgingly. He does it because you, he loves you. He's pleased to give it to you, he says. This is a quote from Michael Gorman, who's a theologian, and this is what he says. He says, To pray for the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the Lord, is to commit oneself and one's community to embody the value and practices of that kingdom now, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. So when Jesus says that he prays that God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven, he's praying for this reality. He's praying for the reality that us individually as Jesus followers and us as a community of Jesus followers would seek to bring God's kingdom to bear in our reality now, wherever we go in our varied occupations. Wherever you find yourself in life, your primary concern, your top-of-line worry should be, Am I faithfully administering the coming of God's kingdom in this place as much as I am able and it is under my control? That is what we are being said to be concerned about. So the question is not, do you have a kingdom? The question isn't if you have a kingdom to steward, but with which king will your kingdom align? That is the real question. You do have a kingdom in which you are responsible to steward. The question isn't whether it's there. The question isn't whether you have a responsibility to that kingdom you've been entrusted with. It's with which king will you align your kingdom? Because we often want to align it with ourselves as king. And what we're being asked to do is to trade our piddly, elusive control over our small kingdom for the kingdom of the God who controls everything. Are we willing to do that? Jesus says, here's how you do it. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. We, uh, every week, the pastors who are preaching across redemption get together to talk about the text that's coming up. And so it was about a week and a half ago we talked about this. Luke Simmons, uh, who's the lead pastor at a gateway, in observation about this, he said, I just find it so interesting and kind of frustrating that Jesus gives us the answer to this problem in something that no one will ever do. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And everybody goes, he means allegorically, right? He means illustratively, right? He means it's in my heart, not my actually bank account. Like anyone who teaches on this, including me today, spoiler alert, is probably going to say, well, I'm not sure how much he means exactly sell everything you have, but I do want to talk to you about what it looks like. The reality is he's saying if we live into the reality that Jesus is describing in which the kingdom is already ours, then you can be freed to sell everything you have and give it away. And when you do so, you're going to provide purses for yourself or wallets for yourself or investment accounts or 401k accounts for yourself that won't wear out, that won't suffer market resets, that won't suffer depressions or recessions. You will 
give yourself a treasure in heaven that will never fail, a gold mine that will never be discovered by another treasure hunter, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. He's saying that you can sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and when you do so, you won't be losing. In fact, you'll be investing in a place that really matters. But I think Luke's observation really does carry some weight. Why would he tell us to do something that everybody goes, yeah, I don't know if I could do that? It's a, it's a great question. What do we do with it at this point? Well, the first thing we have to do is see what is he talking about? It says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. That's the translation you probably have in your text. Uh, what it would probably be more accurately translated as is sell your possession and give alms. Now, alms are not a word that we typically use uh, in modern life, but alms would have had a very specific application in the life of ancient Israel. In fact, here's how it would work. Uh, when we say alms and I go, this is giving to charity, you go, oh, I know what that looks like. I either give to a nonprofit that I uh, really like, or I've been around church or grown up in church, so I give to the church. Uh, or maybe you're a real pragmatist and you say, actually, uh, that's the government's job. They provide for the poor and I pay taxes, so I'm good. I paid my alms. Uh, I'm sorry to tell you that doesn't get you off the hook. Here, here's the way it would have worked in the life of ancient Israel. You paid a, t a tithe, 10% of your income went to the temple. Religious care. It would have been church giving. And that was expected of you as a Jew. And then you lived in Jesus' day in the Roman Empire, and so you also had taxes that you had to pay to the emperor and to the empire. So you would have paid taxes on top of that. And alms were actually on top of both of those things. Alms were extra giving that you gave primarily to the priests uh, at the temple where they would care for the poor in the community. And so when Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it as alms, what he means is give it to care for those who are less fortunate in your community. In fact, here's a quote from Joel Green. He was a seminary professor of mine who wrote one of the best commentaries on the book of Luke. Here's what he says. Almsgiving does not correspond well to modern-day notions of charity. Rather, for Luke, almsgiving was an expression of genuine social solidarity, of embracing those in need as if they were members of one's own kin group. So, Dr. Green makes the argument that when Luke talks about almsgiving, it is not about giving in a disembodied way to charity. Instead, it's an attitude that says, I have a responsibility as one of God's emissaries on earth to care for the needy amongst our community as if they are my own children, my own parents. That almsgiving is not done at a distance, it's brought close. That when I care for the poor, I care for them as if they are my own family members. And then you might say, well, boy, Jesus really sets a radical bar for what it looks like. This is actually the bar that God set for Israel, his people, all the way through. Here's in Deuteronomy chapter 15. This is at the start of the founding of Israel as a people. There's two sections in chapter 15 that address this. It says, If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend to them whatever they need. And then later in the chapter, he says, I command you to be open-handed to your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in the land. This was an expectation, like baseline expectation of what it looks like to be God's people on earth was to care for the needy without being tight-fisted or hard-hearted. 
That's the expectation. Now, because people do what people do, they turned that expectation of normal living in God's kingdom into a way to justify themselves and make themselves righteous in the world. In fact, I'm going to quote from the book of Tobit, which uh, you might not be familiar with, but Tobit is part of the Apocrypha. So uh, Protestant churches typically won't have these books in their scripture. The Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church still uses these texts. But this would have been written about 200 years before the life of Jesus and would have been known a well-known religious text. And look at the attitude that it takes towards almsgiving, giving to the poor. Here's what it says. Prayer with fasting is good, but better than both is almsgiving with righteousness. So if we stop right there, we go, oh, that sounds good. That sounds good. And then it continues. For almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin. Those who give alms will enjoy a full life. You can see a shift from this is just an expectation of what it looks like to live normally in God's kingdom to if we do this thing, we will stave off death and pay for our own sin. It's starting to morph into some form of self-righteousness. And now fast forward 200 more years, Jesus is on the scene. He's addressing the Pharisees. And in Matthew chapter 6, this is what he says. It's probably small and hard for you to read, but I'll read it to you. Be careful not to practice your righteousness. The original text would have said, be careful not to practice your almsgiving in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they already received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. Jesus is addressing what the Pharisees have now done. What was an expectation of normal living in the kingdom became a way to justify yourselves, and now they have perfected their justification and turned it into a way to make a big deal out of themselves. It sounds like he's being sarcastic when he says with trumpets. He's not. This was an actual practice when the wealthy and influential would come to give their alms. They would arrange mini parades with trumpets and music and marchers to follow them and draw attention as they waved their big check and put it in the box. And Jesus, I imagine, is actually watching this actively happening and turning to his disciples. Hey guys, see this nonsense? Don't do that. Because they got what they were looking for. If they're looking for a reward, congratulations, they already got it. What they wanted was attention. What they wanted was the praise of their neighbors. What they wanted was prominence. They got it. Instead, what you should do is give quietly, and God who sees what you do in secret will reward you. That's the mission of what he says it looks like to give in this way. In fact, there's another section towards the end of Luke where Jesus is back in the t- on the temple grounds towards the end of the gospel with his disciples again, and he talks about what matters in generosity. It's in Luke 21. He says this, it's not the size, but the heart. The text says this, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts in the temple treasury. And he also saw a poor widow who put in two very small copper coins. Jesus turns to his disciples in that moment. He says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more in than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty and in all that she had to live on. 
What Jesus is saying is that it is not about the size of the gift. It's about the cost of the gift and the heart behind the gift. And that's massively important because if you're sitting in this room, you may be a person who has been gifted with absolute massive amounts of resources to steward. Congratulations. God trusts you. He's given you much and he's asking you to steward it. Now, I want, I want to be careful that we don't give ourselves an out and say, well, see, Jesus likes the two mites, not my big gifts. No, what he's actually saying, it's about the heart of the gift. Giving so little that you don't notice is not the same thing as giving everything, which is what he saw this woman give. Her gift was tiny, but what she demonstrated in her gift is that she was not concerned about what she was going to eat or what she was going to wear or where she was going to sleep. Instead, she believed what Jesus teaches about the ravens and the lilies, that God saw her and he valued her and he was going to provide for her. And out of that reality, she could give everything she had, even though it was small. That is what matters in generosity in the kingdom. It's not size but heart. Joel Green also says this about this text uh, in his commentary in the Gospel of Luke. It had pleased God to give the kingdom to the disciples. Hence, they are liberated from the peril of possessions and are enabled to reorder their lives in order to care for the needs of others. I love that quote, the peril of possessions. Everything in our heart and in our culture and in the way the world is structured says the things that you get and the security it provides for you are the very things that you need to protect at all costs. And what Jesus is saying, it's actually in those things that we find our greatest dangers because we will take our eyes off the gift of God's kingdom, which has already been given to us, and instead we will put our faith and we will sacrifice our lives and our hearts to chase that treasure. And what we need to be able to do is to live in a reality that's being described here. The disciples are being given the gift of being liberated from the peril of their possessions. That's not to say possessions have no benefit. It's to say that if we rely on them, if we chase them as the treasure of our heart, we are in trouble. Because eventually the tide's going to go out. And we'll be left holding the bag. I found one study, as we're getting ready to wrap up here, it was a university study, PhD study that was done on how, to, how people find meaning in their work. Uh, and here, here was kind of the concluding observation from this study. This is what it says. When we talk about meaningful work, we talk about three separate components. The subjective experience of work as intrinsically significant and worth doing. So first of all, is my work worth putting my effort into? Is it worth doing at all? The second one is, is this an experience in my work in which I can realize myself through my work? My deepest being, my core reality, can it be expressed in what I do? And then the last one is, does my work serve a broader purpose? That feels totally true to me. When I think about all the people I talk to who are pursuing careers and looking about making changes, these are the things they're filtering their life through. Is the work that I'm doing really meaningful? Does it make any difference at all? Is this what's really deep in my heart that I'm able to express through this work? And is it contributing to the world in any meaningful way? These are the measures, at least from my experience, and now I have PhD research to back me up. This is what people are looking for. And the reality is that's the invitation that we're receiving to participate in the kingdom. 
do meaningful, significant work that expresses the true nature of who you really are with a broader purpose in mind. Here's the invitation we have. Number one, you're being invited to see God in every provision. There's a quote from Oswald Chambers. He says, you, we can see all see God in exceptional things. We can all see God in exceptional things, but it requires a culture of spiritual discipline to see God in every detail. It should be no surprise that when something big and miraculous happens, we go, boy, look how God showed up. But it requires of us a real discipline around our money, our treasure, and our generosity in order to see God in every single detail. If I believe that what I've received is a gift from God, if I believe what I've been entrusted with is something I've been entrusted to steward, and if I believe that I've been given those things in order to bring blessing and the reality of the kingdom in my community— then everything that I do, receive, care for, and give away is all because of God's provision and care. That's a miraculous place to live. That's a transcendent place to live. You want to feel the reality of God in your life, in the day-to-day tangible details, live that way and you'll see it. The second invitation is to bring his kingdom into your world. This is the invitation we've been brought into. Dallas Willard, who I love and quote all the time, I should just send his estate a check, says, we don't believe in something by merely saying we believe it. Or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it was true. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, sell all your possessions and give to the poor. That's what he's trying to put his finger on. If you really believe that reality that God has seen fit to give you his kingdom and he cares about you at a level that he will provide everything you need then you can live into that at such a level that you can sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Dallas Willard makes the argument, that's how we know if you actually believe something. Not if you say you believe it, not if you even believe you believe it, but if you act as if you believe it. That's the invitation that we're being given. Take baby steps into this idea that I've been freed to give, to provide, to bring his kingdom to bear wherever I go to steward his kingdom resources that I've been given and entrusted with. Because he not only cares for the ravens and for the lilies, he cares for humanity. And in some strange way, which we don't completely understand, he has seen fit to use you and me to meet those needs in our world. The last one is this. He's inviting you to invest in unfathomable returns. In our world, if you want to see great returns, you're looking for a few things. Number one, you're looking for a pre-market IPO. You want to get in on that uh, stock buy before it's available to the public so you can ride that pop and make some money. Or maybe you're less morally upright than that. You, what you really want is some insider information so you can do some insider trading. I want to know somebody on a Senate commerce committee who knows about this bad news coming for this company so I can trade on it. And the reason people want those things and seek those things is because it offers them returns that are outsized for their investment. I get that desire. What Jesus is telling us here is that we can invest in unfathomable returns if we're willing to follow the kingdom. Here's what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and then he hid again and from joy over it, he goes and he sells everything that he has and he buys that field. Why would he do that? 
because he knew that everything he had accumulated in his life could be sold and it would cost so little compared to the value found in that treasure that he had discovered. And Jesus has offered it to us. He says, you don't need to find that treasure. You have it because the Father has already been pleased to give you his kingdom, everything that he has. And therefore, we can be generous people who steward our gifts, our responsibilities, our money, our resources to love the world and to bring his kingdom to bear wherever we go. Let's pray that God would make us those kinds of people. God, we thank you so much for the gift of being able to hear the words of Jesus. God, to to be able to talk about and study his teaching, to have a conduit to the kingdom of God, speaking to us 2,000 years later, God, we confess that we are challenged by his teaching. It is no less difficult today than it would have been for the original hearers of these words to realize what it looks like to give up everything we've been trained to believe and everything that our heart tells us, that we need to create a kingdom that must be defended at all cost. God, I pray that you would change us, that you would invite us in a real way to see your provision in everything that we have and do. God, that you would allow us the gift of bringing your kingdom to bear and that we would submit the leadership of our kingdom to you, the king. God, I pray that you would let us believe that those returns that we speak of, a kingdom in heaven where we can store up invested treasures would be something that motivate us. God, that's something that become driving forces in our lives. We want to be faithful people. We pray in 2023 that we would be more generous than we were last year. God, this church has been marked by generosity its entire existence. I pray we would be marked even more so in the future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.